And if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. We're going to continue our series on rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we come upon one of my favorite, well, I would have to say this is my favorite story in the Gospels, uh, any of the Gospels for sure. Uh, this is Mark, uh, or Jesus, and his encounter with the Gerasene demoniac. So turn with me to Mark 5, 1 through 20, and we're going to read God's Word together this morning and then look at um, Jesus and his encounter with evil, his encounter with somebody who seemed so hopeless, and yet we'll see the transforming power of the gospel and of grace. Uh, Y'all, this is God's word, and it's powerful, and it's good, and it is our only hope, and wellspring, we hold fast to his word, we cling to it, I cling to it, so we preach his word faithfully, just know that this isn't some book, and these aren't just quaint stories, this is powerful stuff, folks, this is his word. So let me pray for us, and then I'll read it. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Um, I think of what C.S. Lewis wrote when he wrote about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, when he created this place called Narnia, uh, that was ridden with evil. Uh, It was a place that was called Always Winter. And yet uh, Aslan, the Christ figure in that story, came and defeated evil, defeated the, the white witch. Thank you that spring began there and redemption came and new life began. Uh, Winter faded into summer, always where it was not always winter, but then with new life in Christ, it was always summer. And Lord, it has been very cold here. And uh, Lord, I look forward to this coming spring. And Lord, we live in a seasonal life, but uh, thank you, Jesus, that your word never fades. And your word presents us with the truth that heaven is a real place where it is always and uh, where we won't have to struggle with sin any longer or death or sickness divorce uh, or strokes or cancer or death or Jesus that you have conquered all of those things and your word is the story that tells us that the story of redemption and it is the story of the only hope we have that's found in Jesus so Father I pray would you Open your word to us this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, help us to see the hope only that can be found in your word. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to that, that we would receive it, and that, Father, you would change us and transform us, and that you would uh, awaken and uh, bring to a raging bonfire the hope that is only found in Christ. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, Mark 5. This is God's word, Mark 5, 1 through 20. Hear now his holy word. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not with even a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day... Among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? My high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the herds and let us enter enter them. 
So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Wow, what a picture. Oh, what would that have been like to see that? The herdsmen fled and told it to, into the city and into the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what, to, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but, but, but said to him instead, Go home to your friends and tell them, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Gosh, I love that story. Whew. Well, many of you guys knew, know that Presley and my wife grew up in Mexico. And if you've ever been to Mexico, particularly Mexico, a lot of Latin American countries will do this, but if you go to Mexico and you pick up a newspaper, what's different about the newspaper in Mexico, say, versus the Roanoke Times here or the state newspaper where I grew up in South Carolina? You know, our papers here compared to the Mexico paper are very benign and bland because, you know, you, you can read the newspaper here and get depressed, Right with all the, the reports on crime. Well, in Mexico, not only do they report the crime, but the, report, the photographers take pictures of the carnage, and they'll put it on the front page news, and it's horrible. I mean, it's a little funny, but at the same time, you, you just you look at the paper, and they're awful. They look like the worst, most violent video game you could ever rent, except the real pictures of people who'd been shot, or a car had been wrapped around a tree, and you have a body hanging out, and the photographers are in there taking pictures, and they put it on the front page. The carnage, it's awful. It's abhorrent to us. And that, you know, it shows that there's this cultural difference between us and, and Mexico. But I, but I wonder if the, the editors of the paper, the reason they maybe put some of the pictures of the carnage of an accident or of a crime scene, maybe, maybe that they do that, uh, maybe they include shots like that to make you drive a little more carefully. <laughs> Have you seen that? Uh, if you're in middle school or pro probably particularly high school, you, have you seen the Mothers Against Drunk Driving, drunk driving where they'll get a car that had been wrecked from a, a DUI accident and they put it out on a trailer and display it right there as you drive out of the school? You know, that's a very visual picture, isn't it? I'm not going to ever drive drunk. So in some ways, seeing that violence or seeing that carnage can be a bit prohibitive for you. It can, it can make you think, at least. Well, the passage out we're looking at this morning, Mark, in a way, is doing that. He's very descriptive in this story, and, 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 and maybe the reason behind that is because it's a bit prohibitive. He wants us to think. He wants us to see that this guy who was possessed by these evil spirits, that evil really is evil. In fact, this story is given more ink in the Gospel of Mark or any other of the stories in, in all of the Gospels. He is so descriptive in this story. Now we're gonna see at the center of this story, we're gonna see the stunning power of Jesus. To, to overcome and to, to destroy evil and brokenness and pain. But also, again, Mark gives us this huge warning here this morning. He's, he's writing, uh, giving us so much ink here in this story to give us this warning that evil really is evil. And evil was destroying this guy's life. 
I think Mark is kind of giving us a kick in the pants here, if you will, because I know for many of us, even for me at times, isn't it true that evil just sometimes doesn't necessarily seem so evil? We get bombarded with stuff in our culture, and we just begin to almost get accustomed to it, don't we? Like gossip, for instance. You know gossip, it doesn't seem that evil, does it? You know, some people say, well, I like to gossip just because it helps me blow off steam, right? It's kind of like my, 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 my habit. It's what I do to blow off steam, and it, it's not that evil. But really, you're, you're killing the person on the inside. <laughs> you're killing them. Or maybe it's lust. Oh, lust doesn't seem so evil to me. Just that other, you know, that, that second look that I give or a, a pause on the computer and I want to go down this route and it doesn't seem that big deal. It's not really hurting me. It's not really hurting my marriage. Or greed. There are times when greed or maybe lying doesn't seem like a big deal. Oh, it was just a little white lie. And that, you know, we, we get used to evil, right? It becomes, we get accustomed to us. Even our culture is in a place where bad isn't bad anymore. I think in our culture today, as a matter of fact, it takes things that are evil and elevates them to good, right? Think about how, have you, have you noticed a trend in movies? You know, you watch movies, uh, we love watching, my favorite TV show is The Andy Griffith Show, if you ever love The Andy Griffith Show. I wish TV just stayed th- there when it was Andy Griffith and I Love Lucy, which is great shows. Of course, I do like 24 and all those shows too, and the new 24 is coming out, by the way, I'm excited about that. But, I digress. Uh, have you noticed, though, that movie, you know, even Hollywood, even co- the, 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 the Hollywood entertainment culture has begun to create movies now where the evil character is, is the good guy. And the good guy is the guy who's killed and, and celebrated. It's, it's interesting how even our culture takes that which is evil and tries to celebrate it as good. So Mark is going to extra links here to remind us of how evil, evil is. He calls it for what it is. And so we're going to pick up this morning. If you remember a few weeks ago, we were looking at Jesus and his disciples in this great storm on the Sea of Galilee. And that's where we pick up this morning. It's literally the next day in the life of Jesus and his disciples. You remember the story of how Mark tells it in the previous chapter that we looked at a few weeks ago. Christ and his disciples are out on this wild lake, right? And Christ tames the wild storm or tames the wild seas. And humanly speaking, none of us could ever tame nature. But Christ here, Mark's making a point to show that Christ is the Lord of all creation. And then with an instant, with a word, just like God in a word created uh, order out of chaos at creation, Christ with a word tames the sea. The sea is tamed. And here, Christ with a word subdues or redeems a hopeless situation. So preceding story, chapter 4, where Christ tames the wild seas. Mark's making a point for us to see that Christ is Lord over creation. Here this morning, Mark's making a point for us to see that Christ is Lord over mankind and Lord over evil. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. So Jesus and his disciples were in this boat, right? Uh, The Sea of Galilee, all that stuff's happened. He's calm. The sea, the disciples are afraid. They get to the other side of the lake. There's no rest for Jesus. As soon as he gets out of the boat, Mark tells us this deep demoniac is upon him. And Mark gives us elaborate detail about this guy, the demoniac. Look at verse 3. It tells us, here, here's where this guy's life. Again, Mark's story is so detailed here. He, he gives 20 verses. That's huge in Mark's economy of, of words. 20 verses is a huge amount. He lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, Mark tells us. For he had been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart. He broke the chains on his feet. And Mark makes it a point to say no one was strong enough to subdue this guy. Night and day, 
24 hours almost, Mark makes it out to be, among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out, and Mark gives this interesting detail, and he even cut himself stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, fell on his knees in front of Jesus, shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Well, there are three things that I want to see at the beginning of this story, and then one thing that we'll see as we get to the end of this story. But what we see is how evil begins to take over the heart and the soul of a person. And so the first thing we'll see with that is this, is that this man was unable to be restrained. And sadly, back in those days, chains were the equivalent of our psychiatric hospital today. That's what they would do. When somebody was crazy, when they were uncontrollable, they would be driven out of town and chained like an animal outside of town in order for that community to be protected from that man and for the man to be protected from himself. But yet Mark says that this demoniac had such supernatural strength that not even chains could bind him. He would always break them. People could not restrain this guy regardless of whatever they tried. They could not restrain him. Could not keep the clothes on him. He'd get naked and start cutting himself. They couldn't do anything about it. And it's, you know, this, this gives us a spiritual point here. Mark leads us up to this, and I pulls the rug out from under us, and here's his point, that it's absolutely impossible for us to restrain or subdue or conquer evil by external means. It's absolutely impossible for us to restrain, subdue, or conquer evil by external means. Mark repeats himself in the story again and again. He makes it this point that no one could restrain this guy. You know, you could have gotten a Navy SEAL and Einstein, married them together, and they could have not controlled this guy. <laughs> There's no way. He, he, nobody was strong enough. Nobody was smart enough to be able to restrain him. You see, these people, this, this community, had tried to solve the problem with, of evil with external restraint, with change. And there's a strong theological premise here. Do not miss this. You cannot ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. You cannot ask what the law should be doing. You cannot ask it to do what only grace can accomplish. Stephen, what do you mean by this? Okay, God's given us his law. Old Testament law, moral law, Ten Commandments. God has written his law on every human's heart. That's why every person, every even every world religion other than Christianity even, has a problem with murder. Where does that come from? Because God has written his law on man's heart. And so God gives us his moral law to show uh, Christians how to live civilly in society. He gives us this law to show us that we need to punish evil things, bad things. He also gives us law, almost like this mirror. Remember the mirrors, like uh, you ever went to the fair as a kid or you went to an arcade remember those mirrors you would stand in front of you and they would make you really long or really short or the one that makes you really fat <laughs> nobody liked that mirror you never saw any you know any of the ladies walking by there probably the men too you'd be about going oh goodness oh god go around to the skinny mirror you know that's kind of the mirror here that's what the law is it's like the fat mirror you go in front of the fat mirror the law of god and it makes you realize how sinful you really are it just, it, it magnifies your sin. It amplifies how sinful you really are. And then the law can't fix us. See, the law, God gave us his law as a diagnostic tool. 
The law cannot transform you. It certainly can diagnose you, but it cannot transform you. It's diagnostic. It's not miraculous. Grace is miraculous. The law is diagnostic. So you can't ask the law to do what only grace can accomplish. You see, there's part of us that believes that we can restrain evil, even within ourselves, isn't it? You ever done this where you've blown it? Maybe it's that besetting sin. You struggle with it. And what do you always tell yourself afterwards? I'll never do that, but again. You ever said that before? There you have it. Trying to restrain that evil. And, and, and what happens? You make that promise to yourself. Well, I'll, you know, I'll, I, maybe it's the computer. You struggle with internet pornography. Well, you take a shotgun, you blow your computer up with your shotgun, and you burn every electronic device you ever have. And then six months later, you're right back. <laughs> I'm not going to do this again. There's a part of us that believes that we can try to hold evil down, that we can try to push it down, we can settle it down a little bit. But we can't part from the intervention from God. And Mark makes that so clear for us this morning that we see the condition of this man and people, the community around him, powerless to restrain evil in this guy, powerless to fix this guy. As I was studying this, there was a clear lesson that popped out for me. You know, I'm a parent... Many of you maybe aren't parents yet. Someday you might be. Don't, don't, let me let you, don't let me scare you off. You're not a parent yet. Parenting is more than just external restraint and control. Stephen and his parenting style would often, will often default to external restraint and control, trying to control the behavior of my kids. But you see, the problem isn't my child's behavior externally. The problem is their heart. Jesus says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. The heart of my child is what I need to address in parenting, not the externals. You know, if I just focus on the external behavior of my kids, then I'm never going to fix the deeper issue. And I can't fix the deeper issue. Only Jesus can. But I can't even begin to point them to who can fix it if I'm just dealing with externals. You see, parenting isn't easy street, is it? Who said parenting would ever be easy street? If they did, they were wrong. (laughs) Parenting's tough. And I'm, I'm learning that it only gets harder and harder and harder. I thought it would get easier, but it doesn't. It gets harder. So parenting is not easy street. We all want well-behaved children, right? We want well-behaved children. And many, I'll be honest, many of the reasons I want well-behaved tri- children is because it makes my life easier. It makes me more comfortable, doesn't it? And when my kids aren't behaving well, it's like God's allowing them to do that to start busting into my idols a little bit. And I don't like that. But it's true. And so we need to understand this, that we have no power whatsoever to restrain evil in our own children, much less even in our own hearts. Conquering evil starts by recognizing our utter utter helplessness and us being able to restrain it or fix it without God's intervention. This man was helpless. The external things done for him, pointless. They weren't able to help him. And the next thing that's said about this guy is that night and day among the tombs, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And that tells me that evil by its very nature is destructive. You know, I I don't think this guy who was possessed by this legion of demons, he wasn't just sitting around and all of a sudden, bam, he got possessed, right? You see, something had lended himself probably over many years of this guy's life, many years of him not listening to God. 
many years of him uh, turning himself over to things that were evil, those things began to take root and hold in his life. And sin by its very nature is self-destructive and evil by its very nature is destructive. There's nothing constructive about evil. There's no constructive criticism. Evil is always destructive. There's no such thing as evil going in the right direction. There's no such thing as evil that has wisdom. Now here's the deal. This guy probably likely had been giving himself over to something for years and years and began to lose his humanity over and over again. And here's the deal. If you begin to give yourself over to evil, your sinful nature, whether you realize it or not, will begin to grow more and more. And you will be on a certain pathway to self-destruction because, you see, folks, that's what evil does. And another problem surfaces up here. This destructive of evil isn't always apparent as this guy's situation was. It's pretty apparent in this guy's situation. But for us, it's not always apparent. But what evil produ- What does evil produce? It produces the fruit of evil. And so that's why Mark gives us the staggering picture of this man who wants us to see the fruit of evil in this guy's life. When evil begins to take over, here's what it actually produces. You know, think about it in terms of our maybe particular struggles. When you're on the internet, for instance, and men, I'm, I mean, I'm speaking to women, but men, I'm probably speaking more to you. When you're with, uh, on the internet or you, you have a piece of technology in front of you and the temptation to go where you don't need to go and look at things that are harmful to you, to look at pornography. That buzz of lusting that comes to you when you, when you, when you, when you go after something that you cannot have. It, it doesn't seem so evil at the moment. It almost seems pleasurable. What's wrong with a little pleasure, Stephen? Well, here's what's wrong with that because it can be, begin to produce an addiction. You would be staggered. Probably not staggered. You're smart enough and coy enough to know that, that addiction is so easy to happen and becoming sexually addicted to internet pornography is so easy, folks. And it's becoming more and more and more easy as our culture and our restraints of our culture are lessening more and more. Maybe it's tax time. You know, you've gone and you've tweaked your numbers a little bit on your tax return and you think nobody's going to know. It's just a small number here and you get a little little bit of an extra return that comes in, a little bit of extra money in your pocket. That's no big deal. It doesn't seem so evil. Let's go back to gossip. I mean, I know that's one that many of us struggle with. We probably all do. Where you gossip about someone else and you just feel like, oh, I just got to let off a little steam. And what you're really doing is you're dirtying or destroying that person's reputation. And to you, it doesn't seem so evil. And maybe one of the reasons it seems innocent is because that person is not directly in front of you. And you're feeling the buzz of passing somebody else's story to somebody else because it makes you feel better about yourself. That's scary, folks, isn't it? There's so many evil things that we struggle with, that we imagine, that we hardly bat an eye at. But Mark is giving us the nature of evil here to show us that we have this warped tendency to look at things that are evil and not call them evil. And this isn't fun to preach about. It's not like I'm enjoying this because I'm pointing right at myself too. But we need to be warned. God loves you enough to warn you. He's a good father. He's a good papa. And good papas, good daddies warn their kids, don't they? He's a good father who warns his children. 
And he gives us this, stories like this, to warn us he wouldn't be loving us if he wasn't warning us. So on our story of the morning, we move towards this man's approach to Jesus. We see the influence of evil in his life and how it has begun to destroy him, to deconstruct him as a person. And then we see Jesus in his encounter with this guy. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. That's an interesting thing to say, isn't it? This demon-possessed man says to Jesus, he's addressing Jesus by this magnificent title on his knees before Jesus. Mark James tells us that even the demons recognize Christ's authority and power. But what the demon said here was not worship. It almost sounds like worship. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It almost sounds like worship, doesn't it? But it's not worship. And our third observation comes out of this, that evil is always against God. Evil is always at war with God. In fact, evil has as its goal to conquer God. So the man falls down before Jesus and says, what do you want to do with me, Jesus? It wasn't, oh, Jesus, I worship you. I want to follow you. Your will be done in my life. I am yours. It was, what do you want with me, Jesus? Stop bothering me. Get off of my territory, Jesus. You can almost hear the contempt in his voice. This wasn't worship, folks. This was rebellion and hatred towards Jesus because evil is always against God. And then even more outrageously, the demon says, swear to God. It's not his word, his language. Swear to God that you won't torture me. Some of your versions might say, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, adjure is a word that we wouldn't use these days, but it literally means I charge you, I command you, do not torture me. This is Jesus, right? This is God incarnate who Paul says in Colossians that he is the image of the invisible God for by him, through him, and for him on heaven and earth, everything visible and invisible, everything that has been made has been made for him and all things were created for him and by him and he is before all things and here is this demonic figure coming, this measly demon coming before Jesus outrageously disrespecting Jesus. Before you do anything to me, Jesus, I want you to tell you, I want to tell you what I want you to do. You don't say that to the king of the universe. (laughs) You don't. You don't say that to the Lord of the universe who's standing before you. And this is where it gets glorious and beautiful. Look at verse 9. Mark says, Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding nearby, nearby on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them, please. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out, went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. You know, if this were a boxing match, with Jesus and evil in the ring, the Lord of hosts, Jesus, there was no contest. This was like a three-second KO. Bam! You know, if you'd paid tickets for this boxing match, you'd be demanding your money back. Because Jesus has power over evil. And Mark wants you to see that so clearly. You need to get this. Think about this in your 
battle with evil that who you are and what has been done for you must come before here is what to do. Let me help you make sense of this. The who you are and what has been done for you must come before the here is what to do. First, you have to affirm who Jesus is, his power and his authority over all of creation and even the evil in your life. You have to affirm who he is and then affirm what he has done for you on the cross and your identity as his child if you have trusted him that he has gone to battle for you. He has conquered evil on your behalf. He has gotten you to the ring that he is the one who gives you courage to fight evil because it is his strength to fight that is found in the cross of Jesus and his grace if you trusted him. So in this moment, Mark makes it clear that Christ has all authority over power and evil. And then get this. You remember earlier in the life of Jesus when he goes out into the desert, Mark tells us that beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes out in the desert, he's tempted for 40 days and nights, tempted by the evil one, the devil. And then the other gospel writers tell us that, that Jesus clearly demonstrates his power over the evil one. And you remember what Jesus said when they said what, that you can't go into someone's, a strong man's house and try to rob the goods or plunder the goods of his house without first tying up the strong man. That'd be suicide, right? You go into a burly man's house, right, to try to rob him and, and you don't tie the guy up, you're going to get beat up, Jesus is saying. So Jesus says, listen, I've gone into the strong man's house, Satan, and I've bound him up and I can take whatever I want. That's what Jesus did in this guy's life. Jesus was taking at this moment, entering into the heart of this demoniac and plundering Satan's house, binding him up and saying, this guy is mine. He is not yours. He is mine. Do you remember on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished? To some, some people take that to mean, oh, that oh, Jesus must have been temporarily defeated by evil and then he was bailed out by his father at the resurrection. That's poor theology. Paul says in Colossians 2, and having disarmed Christ on the cross, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He mocked those evil powers. You see, folks, you should fear evil, but you should fear Jesus more. You get that? You can be afraid of evil, and it's rightly so to be afraid of it, but you need to fear Jesus more because he's infinitely more power, powerful than any evil in you or in this world. You can stand against evil with hope and courage because of who Jesus is. And Mark tells us that it's his power, it's his majesty, it's his authority. And if you're his child, you can fight evil because you have a conquering king who loves you. Oh, there, there's so much more here in this story. We don't have time. This is my favorite story in all of Scripture. But, you know, some folks over the years have freaked out that 2,000 pigs died in this story. <laughs> they just freak out. Maybe it's the peta, people eating tasty animals. I don't know. That's a joke. Okay, anyway, thank you. People for the ethical treatment of animals, sorry. 2,000 pigs, yes, they did die. But here's the important and amazing thing about what happens next couple of things jump out here first of all these evil spirits are actually coming to Jesus and asking for what permission I love that what does that tell us that tells us that our Lord Jesus is sovereign over everything 
even this evil. And why is that so important for us to believe? Because his promises can only be guaranteed in the situations over which he has rule and authority. You see, Christ has rule and authority over every single situation. Folks, this is incredibly comforting. There is no jurisdiction in this world where Christ doesn't have authority. Do you see that? There is no jurisdiction in this world around you where Jesus doesn't have authority. But even more closer to home, there's no jurisdiction or area in your heart Christ doesn't have authority. For some of you might feel like there are these outer limit places of my heart where if I were to show these things to anyone publicly, I, I would be locked up and keep thrown away. Those places aren't out of bounds for Jesus. There's no jurisdiction where Christ doesn't have reign in your heart. Not even in desperate situations like this. Not even in hopeless cases where this guy and his community wrote him off. This guy's hopeless. Nothing could be done for this guy. It's not true. Jesus has authority there too. And there's no situation, there's no despair, there's no evil where Christ Jesus doesn't have authority. That's precious. But there's a second thing here. What did the evil forces do in this guy? They created chaos. They created despair in his life. They created destruction. He mutilated himself. Probably would have killed their host. And that's what you see when these 2,000 pigs commit mass swine suicide. So this guy is miraculously delivered from these forces of evil. And what do the people who witnessed this do? They ran. The pig herders ran, and they ran back into town to tell everyone what happened. And I imagine they ran out of fear. I mean, if you'd have seen that, I'd have run out of fear. It had been terrifying. But they were probably even fearful of losing their jobs as well. Think about these herders, these guys who are on on watch tending these 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of livestock. It's a lot of money. What would you have said to the owner of those pigs? What if you'd have been that herdsman and you're going to tell him the story? Well, um, sir, we lost the pigs. You lost the pigs? How do you lose 2,000 pigs? What happened to them? Well, they drowned. What? How does 2,000 pigs drown? Well, you see, there was this guy named Jesus, you see? And you remember the guy out in the tombs, the naked guy? You'll never believe what happened. He met Jesus and got saved and all the evil spirits left him and went into the pigs. It was crazy. You should have seen it. Now, if you were the boss, you'd have been like Donald Trump. You're fired. You're out of here. And so these townspeople come out and the word spreads about this crazy story and they see Jesus and they see this formerly demon-possessed man who had been naked and cutting himself, crying day and night. Mark tells us, dressed and in his right mind. That's really one of my favorite passages. That's precious, folks. He was dressed and in his right mind. Somebody who was written off too far gone. He's too messed up. Sin's taken too much rain on his life. Dressed and in his right mind. Normal once again. 
See, evil always has its intention to destroy the humanity of a person, to rip out the image of God. Yet Christ came and fully restored this guy's life. And even though evil was to take this guy's very humanity, Jesus restored him back to himself. In fact, he was so restored that he couldn't think of anything else but to follow Jesus with all of his heart. He wanted to be with Jesus. Folks, that's precious. And yet Jesus had other plans. I have another commission for you. I want you to go and tell your story. Go everywhere and tell your story of what's happened and what's been done for you. Go everywhere and tell your story of grace and deliverance from evil. Tell your story. His life and his story undoubtedly left a lasting impression because Mark shows us later on when Jesus goes back to that region, the first thing that happens is instead of people running from him, they bring a person who is sick to Jesus to be healed. In fact, this guy, this former demoniac, we believe is probably the very first missionary ever sent out, commissioned by Jesus. You don't have to be an amazing missionary. You don't have to go to Bible college or seminary. You just go. To be a missionary is to be so affected by Jesus' love for you, so transformed, even in the areas of your heart where you think he can't touch, he will touch, and he can touch. Being a missionary is lending yourself to Jesus, trusting him, and then going and telling people what he's done for you. That's what missions is for us. That's what telling the gospel, that's what evangelism is. It's just going and telling people what Jesus has done for you. But you can't go and tell people what Jesus has done for you if he hasn't done something for you. If you're like the townspeople who instead of wanting to go with Jesus, they begged Jesus to go away from him. You know, I just, I'm perplexed. Verse 17, they, the people began to plead, beg with Jesus to leave. The word plead there it comes from the Greek word which comes from the meaning of torture. Leave us, Jesus. You're torturing us. Leave. You know, why does Mark give us this crazy contrast that Christ refused the request of the man who trusted him, right? You can't come with me. I know you've trusted me. I know you've experienced my grace, but you can't come with me. You've got to go and tell people what I've done for you. So Christ is refusing the request of the man who trusted him, and he's granting the request of those who rejected him. That doesn't make sense. But it does make sense. Because for those of us who have tasted his grace, sometimes in your life, God gives you refusals, doesn't he? You thought this was going to happen. Oh, God, I need this. Or, Lord, if you would just work this in my life or in my child's life, and you don't see it come to fruition. And it's a, it feels like a refusal from Christ. But it means, beloved, that he does have a better purpose if you just trust him. But those of us who refuse Christ and God in his mysterious way regrets us refusing him, that never leads to anything good. It only leads to hardness of heart and judgment. And that's what we see with these, those people who refuse Jesus. And Jesus said, okay, I'll grant you that refusal. And he walks away. And their heart becomes hard. And judgment comes their way. Why did they plead for Jesus to leave? 
I think because grace was bad for their economy. God's grace was bad for their economy. Deliverance was bad for business. You see, Jesus, in his power and his presence, had cost them dearly, their financial health and future. You know, what had this demoniac, what had he ever been, what had he ever done to deserve what Jesus did for him, to deserve this deliverance at the cost of 2,000 pigs? They valued their pigs more than their own salvation. Please leave us, Jesus. But there's something that even is more sinister here, and I think hits us closer to home. For many of us, we would rather have our little moment of evil than his rescuing grace. Perhaps we would might say in our own subtle way, please leave Jesus, because what I'm doing right now just makes me happy. Please leave Jesus. What I'm doing right now makes me happy. So I need to ask you a question this morning. Is there a place in your life and in your heart right now where rescuing grace is in the way of what you call happiness? Don't let your life end with the tragedy that you've clung to your sins, you've clung to this evil, thinking that it isn't really evil, and yet you're dying a death by a thousand cuts, ultimately to be destroyed and begging for Jesus to leave you alone, rather than clinging to his rescuing grace. Really, the question is, do you want to go with Jesus, or do you want Jesus to go? Father, I pray that oh, every single soul in this room, including me, would want to go with you, Jesus. Lord, we're all this guy. We're all this demoniac. We all need to be rescued, Jesus. And there is nothing that our parents can do, or our grandparents, or our lineage, or our inheritance, or friend, family member, or fitness program, or college degree, or new hairstyle. Nothing can be done to fix this. Only you, Jesus, can fix this. And thank you that, Lord Jesus, you went after this guy and everybody else had lost hope. You kicked him to the curb wrote him off. And Jesus, you restored him, and he was sitting there as this testimony of grace, sitting there clothed, fully clothed, and he was right now. What a powerful picture of grace and love. And Lord, I pray that that would be said of us, that we would be fully clothed and in our right minds, not clothed in our own righteousness, clothed in our own goodness, clothed in our own religion, but clothed in the love and grace of Jesus. For some of us, Lord, maybe we need to have eyes for the first time that we really are naked. <laughs> we think we're dressed. We think we're getting along fine in life. And really, we're just like this guy in the tombs doing everything we can to be heard when in reality we're utterly alone. No one's listening. And we're naked, cutting ourselves. Pray that in your grace, Lord, you would awaken those here this morning their nakedness, their evil, their sin. And you would open their eyes to you, Jesus, and your love for them.
and that you would bring them to a place where they are fully clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and in their right mind, through the love and the mercy of Christ. Lord, help us to forsake our sins. Help us to not cling to them, but instead cling to you, Jesus. We thank you that you love us. We love you and we need you. Would you help us? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.